Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. Um, so we're doing this new thing. Every week we have a topic. This week it's postmodernism. Now this is new and different from sort of our, our normal podcast fare. Uh, well, we'll see how it, how it plays out. But basically what we're doing is for the whole week we've been thinking about this topic, discussing it um, internally with our, with our friends and intellectual collaborators and with obviously the subscription community. We did a, what we call a community discussion yesterday where we just invite everyone who's a subscriber and an author and we get everyone on a big Zoom call and, and, and talk through some interesting topic this week, postmodernism. That was extremely productive. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we urge you all to come participate in, the, in future ones. So the, the, the thing we're trying to do with this podcast is basically take a digest of all those conversations that we've had throughout the week and just kind of cap it off with, with a relatively more casual discussion of this topic. And we'll see where it goes. So, uh, as usual, or well, not necessarily as usual, but uh, as what will be usual, I have my colleague Ash Milton here, our managing editor. Hey, everyone. Uh, yeah, I can definitely second that uh, the community discussions we've had about this, both internally and on the salon, have been excellent. They've definitely updated my thinking on this topic in a few significant directions. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that there's like some development we'll have to do but hopefully by the end of this podcast we'll have come to uh, a few conclusions about how we can move forward on the issue at least we can sort of lay out um our model of the situation yeah i mean th that's the thing right like when when we started this topic we kind of proposed this thing called postmodernism, and i think like the first thing that became apparent is that uh this term is very flexible depending on who's talking about it and we yeah. actually had to define what we're talking about first yeah, and I think I think we actually ended up abandoning the term in a way. Kind uh, of. I we we ended up talking about a postmodern condition, and like in a way, the the things we're talking about, like the philosophy and the politics of the thing, are less part of a concrete system called postmodernism. It's more like reactions that are occurring within this condition where modernity yeah. seems to be unraveling. Yeah, well, let, let, let's unraveling. let's not get over our skis here. Um, backing up. Basically, I'm, I should give kind of my summary of how I'm seeing it after these discussions and we can go from there. Now, uh, it is Friday. We were planning to have some alcohol involved in this podcast just to make things flow smoother and get a little bit more casual. But it is also 1030 in the morning and I'm not feeling it. So uh, we're not doing that. Instead, I have some eggs. Um, Eggs. So I, I had yeah. tea earlier, so this is a very yeah, Anglo right, uh, right. kind going, of discussion. We're going full Puritan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways, so the postmodern condition. This is this is kind of the the first big model that's come out of our discussions. Is um, now a lot of this obviously is not novel. This is we're, this is just us kind of bringing together all our smart friends and, and summarizing our understanding of it. We have this condition which we're calling the postmodern condition. Now, obviously, to understand the postmodern condition, we have to understand what modernity was and the idea that it was and not is. So I think the, the way we're kind of thinking about it now is sometime in the last few hundred years, we developed this mode of being kind of associated with the bourgeoisie, 
associated with science, associated with this sort of like rational, empirical, objective, neutral approach to things. And that approach was, it's kind of a, let's let's call it an, an elite coordination mechanism or an elite vocabulary of speaking about, about epistemology and value and so on, or, or um, it's, it's sort of a framing on the, that whole, that whole set of problems. And, and the basic content of the frame was that we can trust each other to be basically talking about the same morality and the same reality when we are making statements about those things, because we have developed uh, a number of norms that give us access to that, shared access to, to some moral and physical reality. And that kind of came under this label of neutrality and, and sort of the discourse of reasonable individuals and, um, and the idea of objective truth and all this stuff. And I think that, that actually wasn't that unreasonable at that time if you admit the assumption uh, like if you if you sort of frame that thing as having an implicit assumption that there is this shared cultural heritage that you're actually operating within uh, that makes those those objectivities possible and these neutralities possible. So mm-hmm. so objectivity if, is is a coordination of a, of a sort, right? Yeah, we're, we're both able to we're all able to kind of talk about reality in a certain way. And we're able to legitimate our ideas of truth and about our actions to each other because we have this agreement that there is this there out there that we can talk about in some way and yeah. where we can we can prove each other wrong. Yeah. So so I want to I want to basically distinguish um, just like getting our timeline a little bit uh, out of order here. I think that the the strong version of the idea of objectivity and neutrality and so on doesn't work you the the sort of more perspectival critiques that came later i think they're just correct i think you can only really construct let's say shared understanding of the world within kind of a shared cultural consciousness which is which is uh you know you're looking at the perspective of a particular society whether that be shaped by you know historical contingencies and power and and all these other things uh, it's it's a perspective. A, a society's worldview is a perspective. It's not something that is necessarily commensurable with reality in, in a naive way or commensurable with some other perspective in a naive way. And so, so the idea of there actually being an objectivity and there actually being these like total uh, sort of like metaphysical individuals, metaphysically rational individuals. Uh, I think that is sort of this overextension, perhaps, of the idea, and that doesn't work. But the way the thing did work was that there was, in fact, a shared cultural, enough shared cultural heritage and enough shared cultural assumptions and enough of that shared social worldview that when they did this neutrality thing, they were doing it within that perspective. It's neutrality within that perspective. So you're in some sense, you're just speaking when you're speaking with neutrality or speaking with objectivity. Uh, if we translate that to a perspective of a worldview, you're speaking within 
the perspective of of your sort of civilization at that time. Yeah. So I I think we need to we need to focus a little on that neutrality and objectivity thing. Go for it. Um, and how they relate to each other in the presentation you've given and in the discussion you generally imply that there is this kind of tight relationship between the two. I think one could give a, like narratives where actually maybe that isn't a very tight relationship. So, you know, maybe maybe in the obje- there is an objective world, but when we participate in it, we are never neutral or something like that. Why do you think that there the neutrality and the objectivity parts of this thing are so tightly combined? Sure. Okay, that's a good question. Um so I like I'll, I'll just bring in my own metaphysical assumptions here. I think there is a reality. I think it's a pretty decent model that there is some objective reality out there uh, that we have access to through our senses and, and through our reason and so on. But that said, the the symbolic systems that we construct to understand that thing, I would say are not commensurable. Like they don't necessarily, there is no unique solution to understanding the world. There are many different ways to interact with the world. There's no like, um, I, I think like the idea of representational truth, if taken too uh, strictly, doesn't work. So you end up with the situation where I think my model is, my model is, there is one reality, but all the different perspectives on that reality are different in kind from the nature of that reality. They are sort of in one sense, they're machines. They're machines for interacting with that reality. They're complex, adaptive machines, but they are sort of, I'm, I'm using machines in like a very broad sure. sense. Could we say models just, maybe as well? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily want to imply... Like, like conscious consideration of the thing? Uh, like yeah, you, you could I, maybe I just be acting in a way that implicitly assumes things about reality without yeah. thinking much about it. Yeah, I, I like I... I think consciousness obviously is is a thing that's happening here, but but uh, I, I'm not really trying to get into that or like deny it or whatever. But it's it's that when you're accessing reality, you're doing so through some like system of of concepts that you're using to parse your perceptions coming in, and then system of concepts that you're using to sort of model a reality or to have a model. That model has some correspondence with reality, but it's not like a, a unique sort of representational correspondence necessarily. Mm-hmm. And then you're making actions. And the, the real things here, it's it's that like there's the the model is there's no reality to the symbols of the model. It's the symbols or the internal machinery of the model is just a bunch of internal machinery it has an interior to it, and that's kind of where the consciousness sits. Maybe this is getting too metaphysical, but 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 uh, I think when you're talking about taking two of those things that are having access to reality and then having them uh, kind of agree on what's going on or, or being able to sort of like share cognitive content directly, that's where you're getting... I don't think that works anymore. Like how, so, how hard is the line here between the the, you know the the perceiver the machine or whatever it is and the actual reality you know one narrative is that or one account is right this sort of the Kantian critique that um there is a a sort of hard wall between the things out there and the the models we're creating of them and we kind of have to do the best we can with i I don't think there is i mean i speaking metaphysically i don't think there actually is that hard of a wall like i think often 
the environment we construct around us in terms of even just dumb objects um, or smarter, or smarter but still unconscious objects like computers, um, they take on a lot of our cognitive processes. And, and so, and I think likewise, when you sort of examine what's going on in the brain, you can extend that wall backwards into sort of understanding the visual cortex, for example, and the optic nerve and the eye and so on as, as essentially mechanical, but also as part of the cognitive process. And anyways, I don't want to get too far into that, that rabbit hole, but, but point being, I don't think you actually have commensurability between these models in some like metaphysically fundamental sense, which, and all that means is that to have sort of shared dialogue, you need to have entered into some kind of joint, let's call it a joint consciousness. Uh, and, and so I think things like object, when, when I'm talking about objectivity and neutrality, I'm not talking about there being a, a, an actual reality. I'm talking about the voices within some joint consciousness which is, I think, what language constructs in society. When we have language in society, it constructs this framework where we are all kind of participating in a larger conversation that constitutes kind of the consciousness of society. And we can communicate within that structure, but it itself is just a perspective on the world. Okay, and, so and let's look I'm, at the, the neutrality side of this equation. Yeah, here. and so when I'm saying neutrality, I mean... Uh, like if I had to define that sharply, I would say it's that we're the voices within that dialogue are speaking without uh, with an attempt to not add additional perspective over like to have to have less kind of provincial added perspective as compared to just the thing overall. And and obviously that's that's like kind of a shaky notion. I think this idea of neutrality is a little bit shaky that that it's possible to like be speaking somehow from the worldview itself rather than from right. Some so so ne- neutrality is the voice of objectivity, so to speak. Yeah, and and objectivity is likewise. I'm I'm making I'm making the claim, or at least I'm using the terms in this way, that objectivity and neutrality are kind of only definable within this larger perspective that is the perspective of society and that it's just you're in claiming that something is neutral or objective, you translate it into this perspectival worldview, you are claiming that it is a relatively authentic representation of the the overall perspective rather than, you know, the perspective of, of some subcomponent of that society. Mm-hmm. Though I think in, in reality, you never actually get to that sort of full neutrality. Okay, so we we have these two claims here. We have objectivity and neutrality. I I want to kind of become clear then on how this relates to the idea of postmodernity or a postmodern condition yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, so let me finish let me finish my original story. Um we've gotten sidetracked a little bit here, but basically that we had this situation where we had workable notions of objectivity and neutrality and reason uh like universal reason among at least uh, a certain class that was capable of this kind of dialogue. And because it depends on that unspoken shared cultural foundation and, and value foundation and set of assumptions, that assumption can become invalidated. And I think in the historical process, that assumption did in fact become invalidated as 
our power structures and our political factions and so on learned to start to manipulate that more base layer in a more and more significant fashion so that it it got to the point where like we can no longer be assumed to be actually speaking within the same reality like people talk about this whole post-truth condition where we're Mm -hmm. uh you know like the same people are looking at the same set of facts and seeing completely different things and you know people wring their hands and so on but but like basically the 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 core of that diagnosis is that we can no longer be assumed to have this shared set of of perspectival foundations uh that made modernity possible or made like the approach to epistemology of modernity possible Mm -hmm. and so basically that as a there was a historical condition that was this modernity, which was that those foundations were not yet sort of live, live objects in the political game, and and they have become live objects in in our uh, manipulations of our of our society, and and so that leads to the postmodern condition where all the ways that we have for talking about things and legitimizing power and legitimizing uh, proclamations of truth and all of this are all based on this foundation of individual reason, objectivity, neutrality, implicitly a shared cultural foundation, but actually that shared cultural foundation, that shared set of values, that share the shared like gentlemanly norms of the whole thing no longer really exist. And so we're in this situation now where we're actually lying by, by continuing to ground our discourse in that way. It, it becomes a lie. And then the, the cultural result of that is everyone really gets used to that particular type of lies. And it, it you get to this sort of hyper-normalization state where everyone sort of knows that it's not real, but it's like kind of how we talk and how we, we go through the motions of society with this kind of objective neutrality, expertise, kind of modernism. But that's no longer what's actually going on underneath the surface. And, and most people mostly know it. And that, that is what we're calling the postmodern condition. So, so to restate it slightly, it's like w- the postmodern condition is this condition where we've discovered that we told ourselves the story that objectivity and neutrality and these things are what made the modern society work. And we've yeah. discovered that actually these things were kind of invented down the line. There was maybe something else at play making the society work. Yeah, there was something more fundamental uh, underpinning those that like when they worked, they worked because there was something more fundamental underpinning those, but then we didn't have a good uh, like restoring force on that and a good governance of what that more fundamental thing was so that when it eventually became subverted or under attack or changed, the assumptions of modernity no longer held. Right, and I want to highlight that part. So there's there's an assumption in the model you've presented here where something else, the more fundamental thing itself broke, right? Yes. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case that we've kind of like lost objectivity and neutrality, but the, the society is still functioning. Something broke and it became clear that these concepts... Uh, we're not holding up without the grounding structure that had brought yeah. them into being in the first place. So the death of these things is a con- is 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 a symptom in a way. It's, it's like whenever you have some model that you're operating on uh, that has a bunch of simplifying assumptions, like it leaves a bunch of stuff out of the picture, right? And whenever you have some some paradigm of of especially in social paradigms, it always leaves something out of the picture. 
and uh, because it's it has to be a simplified map. But the problem is in in sort of a complex adaptive system like society, where you're using that map to go and like engineer a lot of manipulations of, of social reality and, and uh, physical reality, you eventually get to the point where whatever things had been left out of that picture are going to become more and more important over time. And you're gonna reach this point where that, that picture just becomes absurd. Um, and I think, I think this is a universal condition of, of worldviews. I think this is something that always happens to any worldview is that you eventually run out of the coherence of it because energy ends up going into invalidating the assumptions that, that made it work. And uh, because there's so much to be gained by invalidating the assumptions that made it work, or it just sort of happens over time as you solve all the other problems that are available to you. And I think this has happened before modernity a few times um, in Western history. Uh, I think one of the ones we were discussing was the example of the scholastic to modern transition involving right. ways yeah. that scholasticism started to get subverted. Yeah. Kind um, of e each of these mechanisms ends up often degenerating into a set of norms or codes that are followed in a way for their own sake. So one of the uh, like inner discussions, yeah. one of the works that was brought up. It doesn't even have to degenerate. It's just that like by using it for so long, the world changes such that it's no longer valid. It's like, you know, in 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 finance, like it, it's alpha decay uh, if, for people who know that terminology. Basically, if you have some trading strategy, you go and apply it to the market. You can make money for a while. But after a while, you've basically like arbitraged out whatever opportunity was there in the market and it no longer exists. But that, I, I think there's more than that going on, though. I, I think in the narrative that it, it may be the case that the institutions have kind of decayed in a way that makes these no longer viable. But it also seems to be the case both in, you know, the sort of late scholastic era in with the rise of casuistry yeah. and in the modern era with the rise of expertise that uh, a lot of more and more social effort starts getting devoted to sort of hacking the structures of meaning and authority, right? So more yeah. and more aspects of life in the modern world try to get themselves redefined as sciences, like psychology, economics, yeah. um, the the whole sort of expertise world of technocracy. The idea was that like more and more of life could now be presented scientifically, whereas what was maybe actually going on was people seeking power within the modern paradigm, within the paradigm of expertise, and realizing that that depended on getting their sort of partisan projects defined as scientific in some way. Right. And I think yeah, that yeah. effort into the social effort being put into hacking, rather than the actual like normal functioning of the thing, is a big part of what contributes to the ultimate collapse of coordination. Yes, uh, because I, no one is interested in actually keeping the system functioning as it originally did. Yeah, well, you can't keep it functioning as it originally did because the situation has kind of changed. And I think part of that situation changing is a changing of, like, again, an invalidation of its unspoken assumptions about people's motivations and people's basic worldviews that made it unlikely and rare for people to do things like hacking the authority mechanisms at the beginning, but those things have changed. And now it's just much more common to try to hack the authority mechanisms. But basically that that hacking the authority mechanisms 
um, and the authority narratives is much more common because those assumptions of those authority mechanisms have become invalidated by the process of history. Yeah, I, I think we should take a moment here and and sort of focus on this a minute because I don't think sure. it's obvious to listeners. So I'll, I'll give uh, an, an account here. So Wolf, I find your account interesting because you kind of start with the experience in a way, right? Like we're here in this crisis of objectivity, neutrality, in this breakdown, and your account sort of starts there and then reverse engineers what was happening. Um, I found in our discussions, like my instinct was is, is always uh, maybe historical in a way. I like to go first to the question of what was the modern era? What defined it? What was the arc of its development? And then let's see if we can identify what exactly is disintegrating. I don't think these are in contradiction, but no. it's I, I know no, I mean, people and tend I've, to start I've, these I've two different ways. I've spoken to those ways. things to some degree, right? Like my account of how it was this, there was this development of a, a mode of elite coordination that depended on a certain set of assumptions. And then that is broken down over time. I mean, right, this, right. It's, but so it's, I, I want to broad, broad strokes, but it's a historical right. And, and I want to spend a moment here on like what we mean by coordination. So in right. early modernity, um, one of the works that was recommended during the course of our discussions was a social history of truth by Chopin, and I, like one of the most important facets of early modernity is the rise of a, a kind of scientific way of understanding reality of the idea that mm -hmm. rather than having to go through the system of natural philosophers uh, or those given imprimatur to talk about these things by the yeah, church, the you could have like gentlemen of leisure engaging in pursuit of truth and they could use, uh, you know, the, the early scientific paradigm, empirical proof and so on to gain legitimacy that what they were saying about reality was correct. I think this is a really interesting account of like what is actually behind the explosion of material progress and so on that ends up happening. I, I think there's obviously a lot of downstream political stuff that, that stems from that, but I want to focus on that mechanism, right? This is the thing that starts becoming distinct about how we talk about truth and modernity. And I think what you're talking about here, Wolf, with objectivity is sort of in inherent to this worldview to a degree. Yes, uh, there's right. a world that we are learning about. And when I show that I have accurately learned something about it, this gives me a kind of legitimacy. And yeah, the and, and the, key, thing is that, the key thing is that is that there's that process of showing that you've learned something and uh, like being able to sort of show your work, show uh, evidence, show proof, and then have that be accepted by others. This mm -hmm. that that kind of relies on this deep again, this deep set of assumptions culturally about what people's motivations are, what people are, are, are the level of honesty that they're engaging in. Because as we've seen with modern science, like when you are no longer able to rely very heavily on people's kind of, on, on certain cultural assumptions that, that uh, underpin that, that previous thing, you get a lot of fraud. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we have sort of increasing fraud over time in science right now. Well, and we've talked about before how a lot of the most important scientific progress seems to come from small, tight-knit working groups, right? And I think right. this is part of why. In a group like that, where you have a certain degree of trust, you can both verify what other people are saying, but you can ideally also hope that they are presenting 
information to you in an accurate way, right? They're honorably respecting the the rules of proof and discourse that the group has created. And this isn't like necessarily a whole um, theory of knowledge here. I, I think it's something that ends up working quite well. And then ultimately it starts getting formalized into a whole kind of paradigm of thought or a way of talking about truth. Yeah, and I think I think a key thing there is the other thing that makes those small groups work well is because they're coming at this from sort of just a shared intention to figure out the truth, they are actually engineering their standards of discourse around the actual set of assumptions that they are able to make. Uh, like they're not just taking some off the shelf scientific method and implementing that and it only happens to work in these small groups. It's that they are inventing for themselves uh, a style of discourse that uh, takes advantage of the assumptions that can be made in that particular group. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's often going to be quite quirky. It's going to be it, it's going to be different from what it would be somewhere else. But it's able to produce knowledge because the the mode of discourse is well suited to its social environment. Right. And and then an interesting thing starts happening with this, right, where um, these kinds of norms that begin in these tight-knit royal society type groups start getting scaled up and extrapolated to other parts of society. So ultimately, there's a political narrative as well, right, where right. Uh, states and political actors and power has to prove itself in a way. It You know, there are ends that it should be achieving in the society. Um, the, you know, the, the, the rights of man or human progress or something like this, material development. And by achieving those things, power has kind of like given proof of its own validity. And that's pretty, that is new, right? It's, it's saying that, um, sacral authority that can't be questioned is no longer the basis of power. Power now has to create this whole other narrative of its legitimacy where it is in some way representing objective, apolitical, neutral truths about the world, right? And and this right. kind of varies depending on which path of modernity you take. So if you're in a liberal democratic world, it's like, you know, we have developed the most democratic, most liberatory system. If you're in the communist yeah. world, it's we have liberated the working class, we've unleashed material progress. So the the things being proven change, but this kind of more deep level mentality that power has now proven its expertise about something becomes kind of universal, right? In China today, the the party state has a similar foundation for its authority. It has achieved the development and liberation of China. So the whole world is in a way still operating under power structures which have legitimated themselves on these modern grounds of objectivity and expertise. Uh, And I think this is important to understanding modernity. Yeah, yeah. So then I, let's let's move on uh, to more discussion then of the postmodern condition, which is, mm-hmm. um, I guess, what comes after this, where, I, again, I think the key driver of the transition to postmodernity is that you start to have these, these propaganda projects, conspiracies, just fact, political factions, things going on in the background that are starting to push on the culture in, in particular, in on those cultural assumptions of what what of good faith and and what kind of reality we're talking about and so on, the, the assumptions that make up our actual perspective, and they're they're pushing on those to 
create to um, achieve political ends by, in some sense, subverting the modern system. And I think this is a natural thing. It's like basically the top predators in society, the top sort of social predator organizations are, are finding ways now to prey on basically this paradigm that had been set up, which is modernity. And I think mm-hmm. that that happened, like just, just to speak historically, that starts happening through maybe the 19th century uh, really picks up, like latter half of the 19th century really picks up in the 20th century, getting more and more of these examples where the basic foundational assumptions are becoming, there are sort of now pieces on the board. They are, they are in play uh, politically. And then I think the result of that, again, leads to the situation where, you know, the it, it becomes obvious to to sort of the discerning people that these claims of objectivity and expertise and neutrality are lies and they are just cover for someone's political, someone's like more, more naked political end uh, or naked class interest or whatever. And, and so then you start getting a reaction along those lines. You mm-hmm. get these postmodern critiques from the 20th century postmodernists where they're saying, look, this stuff actually doesn't, this objectivity thing is, is kind of a bunch of BS. Look what's actually going on here. It's one class dominating another by means of these lies. And, and, and so I think that results in the, a lot of the postmodern discourse that we see now under that label. And then another thing that was brought up in our discussions with the community was, was the ways that like, you know, in world war one, you have these big grand narratives being thrown around, but, but like to, to the man on the, in the trench, it, it sort of starts to become obvious that the big narratives are kind of a bunch of hooey. And what's actually going on is like some, some, kind of overclass is is throwing a bunch of these men into the meat grinder uh for their own ends and and it's not like like the narrative right. so like the, the, the mode narratives of expertise, are totally out of sync with the reality the mode of expertise is no longer this. working uh, in, in yeah. a sense right like i, I don't I, know I if think it's like it's not working it's just that like it's become a lie right right that's what i mean though the the mode I, I, the mode of expertise when i use that phrase i mean the the structure and narrative of how you gain legitimacy, which is by uh, showing that you have kind of achieved certain ends in an objective way, right? In a way that cannot be questioned politically. So I would maybe propose that after the Cold War ends, this is sort of the last great gasp of Western liberal democratic expertise, right? Like the the narrative becomes, we've shown that human freedom and human prosperity is best achieved by the Western liberal democratic capitalist system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, you know, th- this is like a, a, a large scale demonstration of its validity. But what ends up happening is that as the 2000s, the 2010s go on, you know, we have wars, we have the economic stagnation, we have the the gutting of of the middle class. Most people start to no longer believe that, in fact, there are experts behind the whole thing at all. Yeah, well, I think another thing there is, um, this just reminds me, like, when we're talking about the 2000s and the the sort of fall of the, I don't know, the, the neoliberal consensus or whatever you want to call it. Peter Thiel's essay, The Straussian Moment, kind of centers 
the event of 9-11 as, as this big sort of momentous event that proves that something isn't right in the way we're parsing the world. We're parsing the world in terms of like man as this materialistic, rational being that just wants the number to go up. And then here are these guys, you know, in some cases, rich, even even sort of people with access to, to wealth uh, who are saying, no, I don't want just materialism. I, I care about this other thing, the, the spiritual thing and this political thing so much that I'm going to, you know, blow myself up to, to kill thousands of Americans. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it's it's like the the act of 9-11 is this total repudiation of the liberal uh, anthropology and and modern anthropology right the idea that all anyone wants uh is prosperity and kind of personal freedom right and and so like there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophical uncertainty that comes out of that i think i i, I don't think there's like that much sort of quality discourse exploring that philosophical uncertainty but you mm-hmm. can feel it right well and, and i think that um you've been tweeting recently wolf about um about COVID and about the centralizing power of technology as well. And I think that um, if if I had to place like why this moment seems important uh, as kind of another blow is, okay, we 9-11 brought forward that actually a lot of people have desires that are not met at all by the liberal democratic order. What this moment does is it takes the actual successes of that order, right? So technological development and liberation, that was the way that things like the internet were presented to us. And it's showing us, oh, wait, actually, even these so-called successes seem to go towards ends that are contrary to those of like the things that that order promised us. So instead of liberation and personal freedom (laughs) and a society where like, you know, anyone can enter the discourse and there's no censorship or masters, it's actually the opposite. We're now yeah, yeah. more centralized, more potential for censorship than we've ever had, and We're actually, all locked down. And, yeah, well, and, and an increasingly an increasing willingness among the people who actually run those structures to do the censoring, and so like that to me seems like yeah. a thing going on now that's out on the level of nine eleven to a blow against. The, the legitimizing narrative. Yeah, so let's let's talk about twenty twenty for a minute. I mean, twenty twenty's been kind of a, a big year. A lot of a lot of it is just yeah, a like couple stuff things is, happened. Yeah, a few things happened. Uh, a lot of it is just continuation of trends that we've been watching since since yes. the early twenty tens, right? But but um, there have been a few nice stark examples. I think the first one, you know, first first uh, arc of the twenty twenty season uh, was the the initial covid thing and in in the initial outbreak of the coronavirus we have you know all these objective expertise institutions you know very respectable very respected everyone thought they were going to do great you know they handled the ebola crisis completely well people were afraid of that and it just never made it to the states uh, but and like everyone expected yep. the same thing SARS, to COVID. MERS, everything. Uh, and then it just became clear that like they were just lying over and over about things like the masks, about like what was going on. Uh, 
uh, about and 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 just covering like ass covering left and right. Yeah, I and, I, 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 I want to actually like let let's flesh this timeline out of it because I think one of the um elements of this year one of the qualities of this year is that like month by month you kind of forget and rewrite the past again so like let's just go through this right when when the pandemic starts we're told uh anyone who's worried about this becoming a pandemic is an alarmist and a fear monger uh these crazy guys in silicon valley who are tweeting about it they're they're just trying to upset things um it's all under control a few weeks later we're told actually it is a pandemic and the nutcases are the ones saying that there's nothing wrong with it um, we're, we're then told that, uh, masks basically don't seem to work, uh, and, you know, th- this isn't helpful. Soon after that, we get masks getting made mandatory. Uh, yeah. we, we have people who are self-isolating getting called extreme. Then we have mandatory lockdowns across a lot of the world. This isn't to say that there aren't, you know... Th- Obviously, there's lots of different groups out there who who have reacted in various extreme ways. Every time a decision gets made at the top, it gets a reaction against it from the bottom again. But the important thing is that the people who were supposed to have the expertise themselves flipped so many times. And I think part of why we see now people, you know, any decision that gets made at this point uh, in terms of a response, right? Second wave lockdown, no second wave lockdown. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of people who say it's a conspiracy, who say that um, th- they have no idea what's going on, uh, and it's you know well, there's it's there's because two that's what has happened. Here. There, the first thing is I think like you know maybe maybe it's reasonable to have a bunch of I I don't know officials basically saying here's how we're treating the situation and here's how we want you to treat the situation, and to have that flip flop over time, it's like yeah maybe it's incompetent, but it's not a lie. Right. But to have them instead of saying, here's how we're treating the situation and here's how we want you to act instead, like trying to just lie to us and treat us as uh, and, and, and like with with this expertise narrative and and like objectivity where they're saying there's no scientific evidence that the masks work. So you should never use a mask and then saying, actually, there's no scientific evidence that masks don't work. So therefore, you need to use a mask. And like, like it, at some point, it's just they are they are officials directing the public, but they're doing so by means of lies, and the lies are just extremely obvious yeah. and becoming L- much like more on, obvious. On, on each and decisional flip, the trigger gets pulled. Like, like the full power of invoking authority gets invoked every single time. So rather than saying, you know, we you know we actually don't know exactly how you deal with this. Uh, we're gonna try things, and because we are who we are, at the end of the day, the authority to try and like safeguard our society from this disease lies with us. And so we are gonna try different things and have to update. But it is our role to coordinate this whole thing, rather than doing yeah. that. Every decision is given the full weight of the scientists say X. And so yeah. obviously, by the time well, you're not- at like the tenth iteration, this is now completely legitimate. Yeah, I, I don't think it's even like it's about the full weight. It's about the implications of the process. Like science is supposed to have this kind of eternal character to it, where once something is true, it's always true, right? You're not, right? maybe maybe you update over time or whatever as you change your model, but it's not political. It's not supposed to be a, um, it's not supposed to be our levers for governance. But if you're trying to direct governance through the authority of science, it just completely discredits science and discredits governance because it, it like governance is 
inherently a reactive and proactive and, and, and dynamic phenomenon. And science is supposed to be uh, you're like trying to establish solid truths that are going to last a long time. Right. And, and especially when it gets po- invoked politically. Right. But I can already yeah. hear people are going to say here, obviously, oh, but but, you know, the science by its nature uh, updates and is giving hypotheses. And yeah, that's obviously true in the way that work is. Yeah, done. but that's not but what's the key thing here. is that in, like- <laughs> when, when science is invoked as a politically legitimizing thing, it is treated as a kind of absolute. Yeah, well, it's, it's treated as an absolute, but it's like an absolute that's eternal, and that, but nonetheless, we're changing it every two weeks. And then the, the result is like everyone can kind of see that this, the experts have flip-flopped, not just, not just flip-flopped like, oh, you're supposed to be consistent and you gave us like one order and then you gave us a different order. It's like they are contradicting themselves. They make, they make some universal claim about what's true in reality all the time. And then two weeks later, they make something completely contradictory and, and I don't know, expect people to take it seriously or to continue to take it seriously. Right. And right. it's, so it's it, the, the issue is not that someone is ruling. The issue is not even that someone ruling is changing their mind on what needs to be done. The issue is that the ruling is being laundered through this objectivity, scientific expertise narrative that is completely inappropriate for it. Right. Rather um, than political but, authority having its own basis and science being the tool that it tries to use to respond to things, the scientific, like science TM, so to speak, becomes the basis of the political authority. You have authority because you are the person who's operating on the basis of science and your opponents in, in yeah. some way or not. And, and, and so this is super this is, unstable, clearly. I, I think this is a good example of, of what the postmodern condition means, right? It's like somehow we've overextended this notion of objectivity and expertise and so on all over the place to the, to the extent where we don't even have notions like there is an official who can order us to treat the situation this way or that way without making all these other priestly pronouncements about what's ultimately true. And, and that's interesting. And it, it like, so it's just, it's just heightened the postmodern condition where you're looking at that and you're, you're like, okay, they're just lying to me. It's just a bunch of lies. It's obviously just a bunch of lies, but they seem to be able to enforce those lies. So I guess I have to go along with it. But like, like the psychological condition there is not what it was in the 19th century when people talked about science. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's this alienated again. It's this postmodern experience of society where where like the thing is just this hyper realist like hyper. What is it? Hyper realism. Yeah, the hyper real. This this idea. No, it's it's. Am I am I citing the concept well? The the there's this book the hypernormalization hypernormalization mm-hmm. sorry yeah it's it's hypernormalization and it's it's this really weird situation to be in anyways I think this is like just a really a good illustration of the postmodern condition but this is not a new thing this has been happening for the last hundred years but it's sort of in 2020 just due to the nature of of things that are happening right now we've gotten a very sharp illustration of it um and it's it's kind of moved forward to a few more things that used to be relatively solid becoming really squishy mm-hmm. um anyway so that's that's the, the the sort of lies side but then we have 
with the whole election thing, the Trump thing, the general political divide thing, we also have this aspect of uh, a lot of these so-called objective processes, uh, like like the way that some of the censorship has been justified, also being essentially like like just using this language of objectivity to cover up for what are essentially right. the major we're just acts protecting of power. facts. We're just defending truth. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 and it's covering up for basically naked acts of power, one way or the other, mm-hmm. and. And like, I don't think we need to go through a whole timeline of 2020 about how this applies, but there's been plenty of examples where something, the the language of neutrality, the language of safety, the language of, of fairness or whatever is being applied in like egregiously unfair, uh, politicized ways. Right. And that's like another- I proposed this thought experiment in uh, one of our, in, in the salon, I think it was. Um, like imagine you could take the the person who's like most responsible for uh, determining the censorship policies on Twitter and sit them down privately and be like, okay, no hot mics, no cameras. I just want to talk to you about, you know, how honest are you with yourself about what you're doing? And I wonder to what extent they would actually be able to be like the thing that happens here is that we're we're saying a lie. But I think that for a lot of people exercising power, it's a lie that they have inculcated themselves into, that they've accepted yeah. about themselves. No, I think that, I think that's a good point, actually, um, that that like to call it a lie is almost like I think you have to have reached an appreciation of the situation that is quite postmodern, like, like you have to be self-consciously in, in a postmodern condition to recognize it as a lie. Whereas I think within the modern condition, it's just sort of how you do things. Um, and I think a lot of people are still stuck in that modern, the, the expertise kind of rational. Right, oh, and uh, that's something important. Mindset. I I wanna, I wanna highlight that point you just made that um, we, we are telling, or th- there's a story being told about how we are now a postmodern society but actually, most of the the narratives and the mental mechanisms we're using are those of modernity, right? So Mary yeah. Harrington has questioned the idea that we are actually we have actually accepted the postmodern condition. No, I, and actually I think be happening I, I, is modernity is in acceleration, but in this like defensive, reactive way that is no longer coherent. Yeah, and I, I think this is a key thing. It's like the the nature of postmodernity is that we're still pretending to be modern and we're not we haven't refounded our political and social and philosophical ontology on uh, an understanding that includes the things that are going on with how worldviews are manipulated by power and and how our basic assumptions about reality are in play as as sort of political objects Right. Um, David we, Chapman we uh, said he, he did this long thread that we retweeted on the Palladium Twitter as well, responding to us a bit on some of these topics. And one of the points he made as well is that postmodernity is really hypermodernity, right? Yeah. Uh, there, yeah, there's yeah. It's, a, a it's, trick being played here in a way. It's it's like we, we've doubled down on modernity and and we've not in fact moved beyond it. It's not like philosophically our society is postmodern. Our society is philosophically modern, but we are in a postmodern condition in the sense that 
the actual grounding of modernity is like very obviously completely broken and everyone can see that. Um, but most people I think are still operating within, within the, I mean, you talk to our parents, right? Like talk to our parents and, you know, no offense if they're listening, but uh, there's a lot more acceptance of ideas of neutrality in, in that generation. And in our generation, it's just like, look, man, it's obviously, I, I mean, to, to, to sort of make fun of us a little bit, it's like, look, it's obviously a conspiracy. It's obviously just naked power mm-hmm. interests a lot of the time. And, and, um, and you know, to, to older people, that's like, you guys are crazy. Why are you thinking yeah. that? Or, or evil, right? Yeah, I, right? I think right. that's more like, if you right, say right. that, then you're evil. Um, if you don't kind of uh, try to anchor yourself in the the ideas about neutrality, objectivity, and so on, then you are straightforwardly just interested in power politics and you're you're you right. know, a well, Leninist or something and this you're is an actually, evil thing. To to talk openly about power and the manipulation of narratives and and that like oh this objectivity stuff is a bunch of BS, that is you are egregiously violating the norms of modernity. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, because again, modernity grows out of this set of gentlemanly norms of how we speak truth. This is this is the thesis that was raised in our internal discussions from the book, The Social History of Truth, that the whole thing kind of rests on this set of gentlemanly norms where you're assuming a type of a certain type of good faith. You're assuming a shared philosophical grounding and you're assuming and you're you're enforcing this type of norms where people are. Uh, acting within certain bounds and and to 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 actually acknowledge postmodernity in a full concrete visceral sense is is to egregiously break the rules of modernity right and, gentlemen follow these norms so we assor- assume that to follow these norms means to be a gentleman right and and so this is why like in public you know like news media doesn't really it, it still kind of talks about these things in terms of well here's the objective process and here's this person corrupting the objective process but they don't yet talk about the po- the naked power and the interests and the conspiracies and the the class interests and the you know all the all the sort of more messy less objective postmodern aspects of the thing not yet talking about those things as first class phenomena that that we have to sort of just understand on their own terms and and work within mm-hmm. uh like that's that's the key thing is like the, the one of the assumptions of modernity is that those are all norm violations that can be enforced against and rolled back and and the some kind of honest post-modernity which maybe we should attempt to construct is that those things are not norm they are there are norm violations of modernity but they are not, they cannot be rolled back. And mm-hmm. so what, instead what we have to do is, is move beyond philosophical modernity and find ourselves a philosophical grounding that understands the fluid, that fluidity and that power influence and all those things that are, that are kind of invalidating modernity. I don't necessarily have a, have like a, the, the new ontology, right? I don't have the new ontology for you. So I'm not able to speak about it with full coherence, but but that's what we need to figure out is how to talk about that in a just honest and straightforward way that isn't trying to frame it 
as violations of modernity. And, yeah. and, I, and think I think we do have this... some posits that we could maybe um, start to outline. But before yeah. we do that, I want to just highlight another conclusion that we can draw from the diagnosis there uh, that we discussed on the sure. salon as well, which is this goes a long way to explaining why we're seeing the kinds of ideological developments today that we are, right? When the the legitimizing frame of expertise falls away, when we start getting conditioned into the new reality that actually there's just kind of a power politics at play here, what reasserts itself is a basic friend-enemy distinction. And what right. we're seeing, in fact, is that those ideologies which base themselves on a very straightforward friend-enemy idea, so we can think of like certain forms of woke ideology, we can think of certain kinds of populism, uh, and so on and so forth. By accepting that distinction, they're able on the margin. Now, again, maybe in an absolute sense, this is actually not the correct way to go about things. But what we're seeing is that on the margin in the actual battles being fought, um, by accepting that distinction, they're able to out-coordinate and out-compete the old settlement. Uh, which, you know, to varying degrees, has not been able to accept uh, its own failure yet. Yeah, this yeah, this is a good point. Is is like, despite sort of our society not yet having officially transitioned off of of uh, post, of modernity, the the more postmodern uh, approaches to the thing are are winning. Um, like you said, the, the woke ideology is more functional for elite coordination on the margin because it is actually explicitly acknowledging a bunch of these things. And not to say that it's you know got all, got all of its uh, ducks in a row um, again, like you said, but but that it is more functional on the margin against this environment. And I think uh, sort of on the other side, um, the QAnon kind of narrative is right. also uh, interestingly yeah that's a good example where it's 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 basic view is like the the power like the conspiracies it's it, it's in the genre of conspiracy theory right which has been sort of discredited since the cia made up the idea of conspiracy theories in the <laughs> 70s um but of course to cover up some conspiracies um, I'm not speaking with full seriousness there, but who knows? Um, who can say? But 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 uh, it, it's in the genre of conspiracy theory in the sense that it posits like uh, behind the scenes, behind the scenes coordinated subversion of the systems of the republic, uh, which are which are in some sense very modern, right? Modern systems of the republic, and and then it it posits that we have to sort of approach this in this very postmodern kind of friend enemy distinction uh fifth generation guerrilla warfare kind of counter counter insurgency to or, or insurgency against the thing in support of this patriotic deep state that that's fighting the thing but it's it's the point being it's operating on that level of like conspiracies and factions and and like mobilizing yourself in in this seeing seeing the situation as as a very escalated uh sort of social war in a sense and that's that's like a very postmodern thing and actually this this is maybe an interesting insight that that comes to mind here is that it might be that postmodernity is like a, an honest uh account of postmodernity and uh whatever will come 
after modernity, whatever will be sort of the stable, constructive, new thing the, of post-modernity, will inherently be in the genre of conspiracy theory. Because mm. the actual thing that happened to modernity was subversion by conspiracies in some sense, or not, not necessarily by conspiracies in, in some very narrow sense, but, but that ulterior motives and unspoken motives and unspoken coordination is the thing that is actually subverting the processes of, of modernity and the assumptions of modernity. And so to actually have a clear account of the reality right now and to have a clear account of what happened to modernity, it might inherently be in the genre of what is currently called conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's an interesting claim. I, I don't know if I believe it, but I'm going to put it forward. Yeah. Oh, and, and I think that transitions us nicely to talking a bit about um, how you actually deal with this thing. I think yeah. one of the how first things I want to bring up is that when you hear the topic of postmodernism talked about um, on like a popular level, you know, particularly in, uh, in, in kind of political subcultures, there's an assumption, I think, that because of postmodernity, we have also entered nihilism. You know, postmodernity is kind of responsible for gutting our structures of meaning and right. for the resulting nihilism. Right. We what we're seeing that. from this diagnosis is that actually postmodernity is a response, right? Or it's a condition we find ourselves in because those things already evaporated in various ways. I, I also want to say, though, that it's not clear that simply by trying to negate postmodernity that you actually come back necessarily to the idea of of truth or of meaning well you can't you matter. can't negate postmodernity right it's an observation about a historical condition right. i think this this is the big update that that has happened through these dis- discussions over the last week like i was coming at this my my assumption a week ago was postmodernity or postmodernism is basically a philosophical movement responding to responding to philosophical flaws in modernity and exploiting those flaws to to do some new thing. And you could imagine putting a philosophical movement back in the bag, but that's that itself is very very difficult. Once mm-hmm. some idea is out there, some some notion of how a thing is exploitable is out there, it it um you know, it's very difficult to to put that back in the bag. Yeah. Like like this this is you know, in computer security, which I think is very analogous to this, you don't try to suppress discussion of vulnerabilities. You have to patch the vulnerabilities. You hopefully you patch them before you get wide discussion, but you don't. If you if you're trying to suppress the vo- discussion of the vulnerabilities, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I think same thing happens in these social and philosophical systems. But the update. Uh, of of speaking of postmodernity instead of postmodernism is that the subversion already happened. The the thing, the flaws inherent in modernity already led to fatal sort of fatal exploitation of modernity, and now postmodernity is reacting to that in various ways. Or, or postmodernism as a philosophical movement is reacting to post-modernity as a historical condition that came about uh, as a result of this right. exploits. Well, and I would say within post-modernity, the reactions are not giving up meaning at all. Like right. the movements that we've just talked about are totally based on the idea that there is some fundamental form of meaning that modernity 
overlooked or oppressed or refused to address. And it's so important, actually, that we're going to invoke friend-enemy distinctions and embark on social war to try and mobilize people for whatever that source of meaning is, right? Some kind of identity, Yeah. usually today. Uh, it, you know, theoretically, you could look at Islamism as, as a religious version of this. Like, m- meaning is being accelerated uh, locally, but what's happening is that it's being torn apart as a consensus. There is not a consensus of meaning, uh, and that is why meaning is becoming thicker and more militant and more accelerated in each faction that results as a response or, or as a result of that collapse. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, and I think this is perhaps where some of Chapman's observations about what sort of systems of meaning are ultimately workable and which ones are not. Um, I don't know if I don't really want to immediate, immediately get into that, but like to summarize what happened with meaning modernity and post-modernity from my perspective, it's yeah, modernity kind of left meaning almost entirely in that assumption layer mm-hmm. and it didn't explicitly address it. It says, oh, we don't have to address meaning within the modern paradigm. We all kind of have our own private access to what's meaningful to us. And then we aggregate that in through the democratic process and the discourse, blah, blah, blah. And we get, you know, society governed with respect to our meaning, but it's all completely implicit. But then, you know, with with the collapse of, of modernity um, and the tearing down of, of all our sort of assumptions of meaning, again, I think the, the tearing down of the assumptions of meaning, there's, there's part of that process there is, the our our worldviews have our our narratives of meaning our worldviews have come into play as pieces on the political board mm-hmm. and this is the ultimate sort of cause of the postmodern condition and that's you know from the inside that looks like suddenly you're realizing that everyone else no longer believes what you believe and you know all your assumptions you thought you shared in common with the rest of your society, you're suddenly in this position of, of being like a holdout. And, you know, obviously that's a very distressing position to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I can see how people like that, that's sort of, especially the, the experience of, of let's say the conservative um, who tend to be a little bit behind the curve on, on uh, the changes in, in sort of assumptions of meaning. And that's, that's a fairly distressing thing. And again, I think I think if we um, kind of adopt a self-conscious postmodernism, we where where it's like, yeah, of course, I don't share my systems of meaning with everyone else. We're in a state of effectively, I mean, let's say social confusion at the very least. Uh, the whole thing is kind of messed up right now. Um, and you kind of stop being distressed by that and you start you stop being distressed by the ways that everyone else is like uh, apostatizing from the religion and, and you start becoming distressed about how is your faction going to achieve victory? And, and yeah, so I, I, that goes to what you were saying with, with respect to like the, the, the acceleration of factionalism and friend enemy distinction mm-hmm. is, is in some sense, like also an acceptance of the postmodern condition with respect to me. Well, and, and I'm a little more um, suspicious that we're just kind of left in that situation of um, like even on a metaphysical level of just reduction to power. I think part of that is because I, 
like what one of the distinctions I would make from the way that you originally presented the objectivity question at the start of the show mm-hmm. is I I dislike the the style of kind of removing the observer from actually participating in the reality, right? Whenever mm-hmm. we're doing these things or making these propositions, we are ourselves participating in in the phenomenon out there, so to speak, right? Yeah. There is no out there. It's, yeah, it's I mean, all around I mean, this, us. We are part this of the podcast. Thing. This podcast is not just some private conversation. We're putting out propaganda here. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. There, there, there's, um, you know, and, and this is uh, something we've embraced kind of in the editorial level of, of yeah. how we think about theses and titles, right? Like make a bald posit in your writing and then if it has to be updated that's fine that does not necessarily reflect on on you but you should update in a way as a response to that so we can't i i don't want to kind of focus on this passive observer who is absent sure. from the actual thing by doing that i think uh i i have maybe more thoughts on this uh down the road i think that there's something of Chapman's we can bring up here. But I, I think ultimately um, that also breaks down the walls between these different forms of meaning that we seem to be trapped in right now, where you kind of can't translate between them. I, I think for now, though, um, one of the things David Chapman brought up is um, the idea of power, right? Are we just left with, you know, in the absence of some kind of transcendent objective meaning, is their only power. He kind of gave the critique that social arrangements, and I'm quoting his tweet here, social arrangements emerge from in unenumerable sources, which we understand only imperfectly, some better than others. They can't usefully be summarized as power. Um, he can probably elaborate better on what he's talking about there, but I think on a very day-to-day level, if we think about the social structures from which we get meaning, um, Mary says in her article uh, on transactional logic that when you look at the numbers, family is uh, the most important source mm-hmm. of meaning for the majority of Americans. Uh, you know, obviously within the context of family, um, sure, I mean, there are power dynamics at play, but the fundamental thing is not power, it's the relation itself. It's the the experience of bonds with other people where mm-hmm. you're serving and being served by one another. Um, yeah. power- let's, not, let's not make that solipsistic. It's it's like our, our systems, our experience of meaning is definitely mediated by and influenced by those things. But I, I think sometimes people get a little bit too reductive with like the meaning is just in the relationships as opposed to the relationships being like, um, something that's happening within your uh, system of meaning, at, at, or which is even kind of sure. But I think let let's try and um, pin down here um, when we talk about power in its relation to meaning. Is yeah. it the case that meaning is kind of just in an expression or a propaganda of pure power? Yeah. Uh, no, it is not. Um, meaning is is like. I don't know if that's the useful question. I, let me just directly respond to uh, Chapman's thing, which I, I, I think Chapman makes a very good critique. I accept that critique. And and like, I think uh, I think he's absolutely right that that basically our our, our experience of meaning, our experience of 
uh, and by meaning we mean both kind of purpose and intelligibility. Our, Our experience of meaning is shaped by many, many different things socially, uh, as he says, unenumerable. The way power comes into that is power acts on some of those things and in some ways deliberately to change meaning. So I would say that meaning is therefore not solely the, the sort of like straightforward extrapolation of power in some sense, but is heavily influenced through it indirectly through all the things that the innumerable things that that um, create our experience of meaning hmm. anyways that that's that's how I would like respond to, to Chapman which is to say I'm not I'm not going to dispute that whatsoever I'm just accepting it as an update right I I would offer um maybe a, a slightly distinct critique I, I think that um I probably have to develop how I express this a bit, but when we think of meaning as just this thing that the observer experiences, I think we're again falling into that trap where meaning is this just kind of personally felt value judgment that one makes about the world. Right. And then then, 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 sure. Right, right. And so sure, if there's no kind of transcendent source of meaning, then we, we are kind of left with this situation where well the participant is just being indoctrinated in various ways but i I think that separates like meaning too much from the actual world in which we're participating uh i i think this has to do with the impoverishment of moral language for example so when we talk about things like the place of humanity in the world you know traditionally that was kind of tied into questions of what is the actual nature of the world, right? What is its structure? What is its what teleologies are at work? Uh, what is it developing toward? And then how do humans participate in that process of development? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, meaning in that sense has to do with like you know what is the position of something in the like the set of contingencies in the order. Uh, that we can observe with within the universe. Now, this doesn't fully get us, I think, out of the 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 situation of nihilism. I think you can probably still kind of create nihilistic responses to this. Uh, we talked about speculative realism as one school of thought, where mm-hmm. this school kind of rejects the notion of meaning as a way to save the idea of truth, and so we are just kind of in these structures that operate. Uh, without any real reference to what we want or what we observe. Um, This is a strong kind of nihilistic statement, I think. But in terms of the pre-modern paradigm uh, in in the Western world, when when this kind of classical Christian paradigm talked about meaning, I think that they very concretely were referring to things that you can observe about the nature of the universe and the nature mm-hmm. of human beings in that universe. I don't think it was anything to do with this purely personal uh, judgment about the things around us. So this might be another um, way that you you break the dichotomy here. Yeah, I mean, to, to get back to that question of like, how do we recover kind of from post-modernity, which I think is sort of the interesting question here. Um, and, and what is that going to mean for our meaning our, our narratives of meaning by which like like let's let's make the our interpretation of meaning as wide as possible here we mean generally 
the ways that we interpret the world, which includes epistemology, um, and but also the ways we value uh, things. But and and sort of modernity kind of delegated those questions to to people's kind of private intuitions uh, because it just it again it depended on that that sort of shared cultural heritage that has now become too shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think the way we get out of it is I mean. <laughs> The, maybe I, you can call this a pessimistic view, but I think one of these factions just has to win. A, a faction has to win at this postmodern game, take over and and kind of produce some kind of hegemony. Because I, I mean, may, and maybe that can be some kind of settlement, joint settlement between a few of these factions. Settlements, of course, require more philosophical work to be done uh, than someone simply winning. Um, so, you know, you know what we're trying to do here is do, do some of that philosophical work. But... I think you basically just need to have, well, okay, let me, let me back up a minute. Within this, what we're calling the social war or the postmodern condition, we have many factions. Within the factions, they have meaning narratives. They, they have, and those, I think, I think this is another good point that Chapman raises, is that those meaning narratives are never quite a real coherent thing. They're sort of implied by what's going on, but they're never actually real. And if you treat them as if they're too real, um, you're missing the point. When somehow. you say the meaning narratives, do you mean sort of the the settlements that these power actors come to? This is this is what he calls eternalism. Um, uh, okay. Chapman calls eternalism the these like kind of meaning narratives that attempt to sort of finally answer all the questions in some top down manner, and and those things like a more mature kind of understanding. I'm trying to paraphrase yeah. him. I'm probably well, and sort of it, it's. I think it, the, the key thing, the reason he calls it internalism is that it's an unchanging foundation. It, it like yeah, it, yeah. It, in some sense we have this this uncontingent bottom to the thing that we yeah. can build anything else on. And yeah, he and, and I think exists. I think the basic the basic observation he's making is that those do not in fact form a solid underpinning for these factions and or societies or whatever and philosophically they don't actually work and you need to take a much more fluid kind of theorize only on top of the phenomenon itself in a way i'm 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 probably i'm probably butchering this but but yeah anyway i'm not gonna well, i just want to point out that, that um I, I can kind of give some some summary here of his own response um on the eternalism thing I, i'd say like my personal perspective is I don't think that um, rejecting all eternalist, all uncontingent things is philosophically tenable. I I don't think we're actually in the situation. But, you know, from within the condition of post-modernity, Chapman's solution is what he calls the fluid mode. So um, he he kind of says that post-modernity has left us with absolutes without structure, right? So the absolutes being these accelerated militant forms of meaning that end in conflict yeah he proposes structure without absolutes so a a sort of form where you can accept i guess like localized forms of meaning but you do not adopt the frame that these are the only possible ones nor do you adopt the frame that yours is kind of like the central pole against which the other ones are judged 
to to me, uh, I I had asked him, uh, and yeah, I don't know if that's possible. I, I had asked him whether he he's read like Deleuze, who you know, for for people who have read Deleuze, they'll know he talks about things like assemblages and rhizomes. So right. the, this idea that you can think of reality as structures that don't necessarily have like a center, like they're pure loops of structure and system and feedback that update and learn. But that don't necessarily have like a central guiding yeah. thing behind them. Yeah, they them. don't. They don't necessarily have. You know, they don't. They don't like compile down from some from some crisp like uh, rigid philosophical axiom system. But but they they do still have some kind of reality as a, as an existing phenomenon. Right. Anyway, right. So, and, and so I can I, say I, so. I, David's answer to this was that he has not, in fact, read Deleuze. So it's interesting to me that he comes to um, a, a kind of similar idea there. Yeah, that is interesting. But anyways, to finish my thought on on where I think this is going or has to go, I think these factions that we see within the within the postmodern condition, um, I, I think there are maybe fewer factions than, than people realize. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or perhaps many more. Can you posit like, like what is the short list of the factions we're looking uh, at here? So I think, I think we've got sort of the woke thing. I think we've got, I don't know. I, it's hard to say what the what the f- factions are simply because, like, it's not a normal in in war. There's sort of chains of command. <laughs> right. Is China's model like, of faction here? Is what's that? Is the Chinese model a faction here? Uh, I mean, the Chinese are definitely a faction. Um, okay, but but the I it's hard to draw boundaries around these things because again, they are not in fact like ontologically unique sort of coherent things. Sure, but let's just say that there's this soup of factions, uh, and they may in fact be uncountable factions. I don't mean very many. I mean un, like qualitatively uncountable um but anyways i think what needs to happen is or or what's what's going to happen is one of these things is going to be developing a paradigm that is capable of hegemony and perhaps multiple of them will develop paradigms capable of hegemony or or develop i don't know the seeds of such a thing and then someone will get a position of overwhelming hegemony and begin to impose that impose that paradigm that is capable of hegemony. And I had like not all paradigms are capable of hegemony. A lot of them are like I think the woke thing in particular is not actually capable of hegemony because it defines itself almost always as this resistance. Right. It's, it's always the moment it accepts power, uh, the thing falls apart. Yeah, it, the moment it says like actually we're in charge, um, it's not. It 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 can't. It doesn't have the the philosophical flexibility to do that at the current time. Maybe it'll. Maybe someone will cook up a better version of it that, yeah, that actually the, does. Yeah, have we, that we could foresee but, iterations, which uh, you know, l- like with but, um, communism, uh, right? It defined itself as almost entirely oppositional up until its victory in Russia. And then you actually had iterations develop where they had accepted power. Yeah. Uh, and and you have to do similar. things like, I mean, and in the communist revolution, they had to, uh, I don't know if they had to, but, but they did in fact purge all the old revolutionaries who were still stuck in the revolutionary mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but point being, I think 
something has to develop, some faction has to develop a paradigm that is capable of hegemony and achieve hegemony. And once that happens, then I think we're out of the postmodern condition, except in sort of the strict sense, it's like it's we're still after modernity, but we're not in what we currently understand to be the postmodern condition. And, and I think what that looks like is people stop appealing to objectivity and stop appealing to neutrality and stop appealing to these uh, modern notions of fairness uh, and modern notions of expertise and so on. In, in their justifications of things like censorship or the action, uh, actions of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that, I think, can be the basis for actual new progress, is once you have a paradigm that has accepted hegemony um, and is out of the limitations of modernity, then we can start talking about how to improve that thing and, and how to, like, you know what 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 governance looks like like there's there's some sense we're getting a little bit towards the end here but but one final thought i had was i've been thinking over the past couple of days also about the censorship situation with you know twitter kicked new york post off off uh yeah but block block them from tweeting the stories about hunter biden yeah well blo- block everyone on the basis that, that they were i mean it's Na- na- basic, basically like naked partisanship, but they were still claiming some kind of neutral process to it. Yeah. Um, but like one thing that I've been wanting to say on that, I, I might still tweet this on the Palladium account or something, but um, is the problem censorship isn't necessarily a problem. Almost all civil societies throughout history have done censorship. It's a normal thing. You always have the the powers that be shaping the public discourse to steer it in the ways that they find the most useful. And that's a normal part of human society. And in fact, I think that's a good thing. The So like in some sense, I have an urge to kind of like, you know, play a contrarian move and cheer on the censorship um, and say like, look, guys, this is actually the problem. Everyone's complaining about about nothing. But the censorship, of course, should be done honestly. Like, hey, this thing is... <laughs> We're shutting this down. It's our decision. Deal with it. I think part of the issue with that, of course, is that the thing currently being censored is it's like it's hard to get too mad about the lies about censorship when the censorship is actually attempting to cover up other worse lies and corruption. And so that's that's sort of another angle on on that that complicates it. But another complication that I realize, which connects to what we've just been discussing, is our situation is not right now such that it makes a lot of sense to be talking about what good governance is. Now, this seems weird coming from a governance magazine, but I'll explain this in a second. Basically, we are not in a situation where governance is possible or happening and, or or like that the discussion of, of how things should be governed is immediately applicable because the actual situation is that we have a fairly existential grappling with this postmodern condition. That's the general situation. The more acute situation is a fairly existential elite fight, uh, intra-elite fight around Trump. And mm. and you can't get, you can't be talking about sort of how to understand governance when you don't have a coherent, legitimate hegemonic faction. And we don't have a coherent, legitimate hegemonic faction right now. We have kind of this this situation of a fight. 
And, you know, the way this the way this relates to what we've been saying is like at some point, some head some faction has to win and accept hegemony. And and at that point, governance starts to become a real thing. You start to be able to do the mirror of princess thing that we've that we discussed on the podcast with Mary, uh, which we recorded yesterday. We'll see when they all get released. But uh, basically, there's this idea of giving advice to the ruler. How can you rule better? to achieve your interests better, but also to achieve justice better and, and make it better for the rest of us. Uh, and that kind of advice I think is, is very important and we need to be working on that, but it doesn't, it's not currently something that has a customer. Yeah, there well, is, and, and is, that mode of advice, I think is where you start presuming forms of meaning as well. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. I think that but, power and, and, for power's sake ends up actually being, like I, I could see someone say that, oh, rather than even discussing questions of meaning, uh, you know, the, the honest thing is to kind of pursue power for power's sake. But the moment you start yeah, deciding there is no how to act sake. with power, you are making decisions now about what matters in the world. Yeah. Uh, well, so this like, is not like, stable. I think I, yeah, I think, I think like you can't avoid the philosophical issue with, with like power for power's sake, which is that power is a means and you are using it for some end. And so you better have, you better have some understanding of what ends you're using it for, or you're going to, you risk sort of philosophical incoherence and um, ultimately not getting what you want because you do actually want something. Power is not that interesting on its own unless there's something you're getting with it. But that, that's all aside. Point being, I think the one way to understand the Palladium project is we are, so this, this is kind of, tying up a few threads that have been raised throughout this discussion. We are attempting to sort of build that body of coherent advice that will be applicable in the next paradigm, but is not currently applicable. We don't, or at least I don't believe that governance discussion is all that applicable right now, because I don't think that's the situation we're in. I think we're in a situation where it's mostly about the politics in the sense of who is winning. And it's about the philosophy right now in the sense of how do we develop a paradigm that can accept hegemony. But the whole pro our whole project is somewhat forward-looking where we expect some future condition to come in the near-ish near future over the next, let's say, a decade, hopefully, uh, hopefully not longer than that, where it will be possible again to talk about governance coherently and it will be useful to have developed a bunch of people who can think about that and who have a, a worldview that can advise a hegemony. Uh, so that that's one of the things that we're trying to do. The other thing that we're trying to do is, you know, we talked about paradigms that can accept hegemony. I, I think there's actually a lot of philosophical work that goes into that. And we also talked about what it would mean to accept the postmodern condition in in like, you know, we mentioned journalism Mm -hmm. largely doesn't accept the postmodern condition and still sort of operates within modernity. And, and Palladium is in some sense an experiment to figure out how do we talk about power and society without making the assumptions of modernity about objectivity and neutrality and so on. And how do we actually engage with the thing? I, I won't say apolitically, but you know we're, we're not directly trying to fight the fight here with Palladium. We're trying to sort of advise the winner in a way but th this this basically kind of ties together what palladium is about that we are trying to 
it's it's in some sense the whole project is a response to this postmodern condition where we are assuming that it will get resolved by some new hegemony and some new paradigm. And we want to help contribute to that going well and advise it, like build up a body of advice that can be useful to that once it happens so that we can all have a better outcome. And anyway, that, that's, my, that's my, yeah. my plug for Palladium in the context of this discussion. Here's, I think, a, a closing question that I think people still have after that. It sounds like there is a distinction between the philosophical solution for the postmodern condition and the the political power stabilization solution to the the instability that that condition has created. Yes. How confident are you that the the second one has to entail the former? Like, does how given some kind of philosophical resolution to the question of meaning and of postmodernity, uh, how necessary is it for whatever? comes next in terms of power structure to actually accept it? Or could they actually found themselves on some completely different thing? Except which? I, I Except don't think... the philosophical um, resolution, I guess. Like, you know, say that... Well, there's, uh, no, there's no, like, unique resolution, right? Like, I, I think this is one of the things that we have to accept sort of within the general sort of philosophical currents that, that also go under the label of postmodernism is this idea that there isn't necessarily a unique answer. Um, but I think the way those things are connected is obviously the, maybe not obviously, but, but in my opinion, the, the physical power structure is the most fundamental thing. So there's going to be some new physical power structure that said, and that, that, you know, that thing only like the philosophical part only comes in to the extent that it's necessary to make the physical power structure coherent and work. Now, but I do think the philosophical things are very necessary to make the philosophical, to make the physical thing actually work. Because part of the physical thing is about coordinating humans or maybe coordinating, I mean, maybe we just sit here and fool around until we're replaced by machines or something. But like, at some point you have to coordinate different different sub-processes within society. And those those things need a shared narrative of what's going on and what they're doing and and how who has the, the authority and so on to be able to coordinate it all. And to do that requires a philosophical worldview that has answers to those questions. And modernity had answers or sort of. It 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 was a philosophical worldview that 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 worked in that way, but as we've seen, it had vulnerabilities. It ended up with this this postmodern condition, or which is in some sense also a hypermodern condition. But I think to get some new hegemony, you necessarily need to have transcended the philosophical limitations of modernity, uh, one way or the other. Now, I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. I think we can try to contribute to one possible answer. Um, I don't think we can claim to be producing the only possible answer. So I, that basically, basically, I think that like the the actual coming power structure is the more fundamental thing. But for it to actually work and for it to actually achieve sort of its self sufficiency as a hegemony and accept hegemony, it needs to have a different philosophical outlook because modernity, all the all the factions currently fighting or 
much of the fighting currently within modernity is still happening on modernity's turf and they have not accepted like no, no one has even no one has claimed hegemony no one is attempting to just speak their own language uh in in let's say public discourse uh they are speaking their own language internally and i think that transition necessarily involves a whole bunch of philosophical work does mm-hmm. that answer your question to a degree i i think we i think the way you're presenting it over estimates how stable the the sort of multiplicity of modernity actually is like once we've gotten out of the objectivity question um i i think that uh as i mentioned before right i think classically we actually did have a collapse of this objectivity subjectivity uh dichotomy however uh that still went hand in hand with quite strong forms of universalism i think that um I think that the the end of the the paradigm of objectivity as a form of meaning is not the same as the end of universalism. I also don't yeah, think yeah, it's totally it's things. the yeah and and I also don't think it's the end of um I don't think we end up with the sort of walled world of meaning where you know we we basically can't interact with each other. So I I think no. I suspect that um you ultimately uh there will still be a a kind of philosophical level battle as well between forms of meaning that arise after modernity after the modern expression of what meaning is and that's why the mirror of princes thing is even more important i think that if you believe that you have come on the you know if if you think your your form of meaning matters basically then it is going to be important to you that those with power in the world accept it and act on it uh in in ways that you think are are just or harmonious or you know whatever else the 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 iteration is um i i think though what what we have centered on that's important here is the distinction it like be, between how this is resolved politically versus this kind of condition that we find ourselves in i do think that um the the question of what kind of structure is able to claim hegemony next is going to be the important one for asking what can we actually construct now that we're in the postmodern condition right um well these i i think this is maybe a good place to wrap it up yeah here, here's uh, something that maybe we can have a future discussion on. Uh, we talked about this thing at the start of modernity, uh, this this gentlemanly style of um, exploration and so on. And it seems to have been valuable. We talk about synthesis at Palladium. Yeah. I wonder then if there's some way that this thing, insofar as it was really working, can still be saved or reconstituted so that's i want to kind of note that for future discussion yeah i mean i wonder if the solution to to modernity like like you can almost get modernity back as long as you actually just make that transformation that i implied yeah but sort of the real thing rather than the story we told about it yeah like 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 make make the transformation that i implied at the beginning which is that you stop taking for granted the cultural heritage and start actively constructing the shared cultural heritage from some, I don't know, deeper, deeper uh, template or, or deeper s- structure of meaning somehow. Mm-hmm. And and if you do that, like, I think you can just get back a lot of the, 
things like science and modernity and, and neutrality yeah, or, and so or on, discovery re, least, yeah. recontextualized as something that's happening within a particular paradigm, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, what was always happening, but we kind of forgot that or didn't never really acknowledged it. Anyways, so so these these are all great conversations for the future. Um, we are going to be continuing to have, you know, topics of the week for um, foreseeable as, future. Yeah, for the foreseeable future, as long as this experiment continues to bear fruit, um, and we're going to continue to be having internal discussions, very exciting, very fun internal discussions with the governance futurism community over the ne- over the coming weeks and and into the foreseeable future. Uh, those are open to all Palladium subscribers. So if you are interested in getting involved in these discussions and really working this stuff out with us, I mean, you can tell by listening to this that we are not simply coming at this with some pre-cooked dogma. We are actually trying to figure this stuff out um, and we're trying to figure it out with you, the community. So if you want to come and participate in that, please do become a subscriber to Palladium Magazine and, and come participate in our in our discussions. Yeah, so with that, we'll see you next week at the discussion. Uh, Till next, everyone. Have, whatever we I'm looking forward to these. Okay, let's leave it at that for now. See you guys.